Welcome to The Blueprint, the podcast for the world's visionaries and dreamers. I'm your host, Chika Chukudibelu, and before we dive into today's episode, I want to say thank you to all of you who've been listening and sharing the episodes with your friends and sharing with us what you've gotten out of the show so far. Tamara Young wrote us to say that she was crazy inspired by part one of Franklin Leonard's episode. Aaron Shulman in Santa Barbara is loving the process of finding his own path and really connected to our conversation with Warner Brothers executive Nijah Kirkendall. He's going to keep us posted with how things continue to go with him. And Celeste Stewart really enjoyed our conversation with Nkechi Carroll and was especially inspired by Nkechi's perseverance, faith, and willingness to change course. Please do keep the stories coming on Facebook and Twitter. You guys are definitely inspiring us to keep going with the show. Today's episode is part two of our conversation with Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of The Blacklist. A little refresher for those of you who haven't listened to part one yet and aren't familiar with what The Blacklist is. Hint, hint, you should listen to part one. The Blacklist describes itself as the place where movie makers find great screenplays to make and screenplays find movie makers to make them. Its reputation has grown over the last 10 years, so much so that it's now seen as one of the strongest indicators of award season success. When we ended our last episode, Franklin was leaving for Christmas vacation and had just sent out an email to his movie industry friends asking them to send him a list of the best movie scripts they'd read that year. So uh, I was looking for good material to read. I was going on vacation for two weeks. I wanted to read some good scripts. I sent an email to 75 of my peers. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good chance you were one of I them. Did? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and said, look, send me a list of your 10 favorite scripts from, uh, from this past year that haven't been produced yet, uh, that you read this year and that you loved. And in exchange, I'll send you back the combined list. And that's what I did. And I, I slapped a quasi-subversive name on it, the blacklist, and went on vacation and really didn't think anything of it. It was this email that planted the seed for what the blacklist would become. When he got back from vacation, he got a call from an agent, which is pretty typical for his business. But this particular call let him know that he had something special on his hands. Six months later, I got a phone call from an agent. I think it was at then William Morris, who was, who was pitching me a movie for Leo. And I got that call a lot. Um, you know, hey, I have this new client, and this is, you know, a really good script, and I think Leo's going to want to be in it. And, but he ended it in a way that I hadn't heard before, which was, and listen, don't tell anybody, but I have it on really good authority. This is going to be the number one script on next year's blacklist. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, That's funny. and I was, and I, you know, again, I hadn't put my name on it. It was sort of, it was an open secret amongst my friends that I was the one that had done it, but not everyone knew. Right. And so I was like, really? Like, <laughs> do, you, do you know who created the thing? Like, what's the story? Like, can you give me more information? Right. He was like, look, just, I, I can't tell you anymore. Just trust me. <laughs> that call let him know he was onto something. And he eventually decided to do the list on an annual basis. In a short amount of time, the list gained prominence in the industry where titans like the director and producer of films like Breaking and Entering, Cold Mountain, and the talented Mr. Ripley were onto it. I ended up going to work for Sydney and Anthony, who were big supporters. I don't think I would have gotten that job. I mean, I think that was the first question they asked me in the interview. Mm-hmm. They were like, wait, we just need to ask, like, you're, you're the guy that started the blacklist, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, Sidney Pollack and Anthony Mingell, I know what the blacklist wow. is. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so... So I, I think I decided to continue to do the annual list on a regular basis, mm-hmm. but I think the real jump for me was the transition from this thing that I did for a week at the end of every year mm-hmm. to this is going to be the basis of my entire life's work and my full-time job, and I'm going to start a business behind it. 
and he soon gets his chance to build out that business model. So I've been working at Overbrook for about two years. Um, I caught my initial contract with them was two years, okay. and, and the decision was made not to renew my contract. But it sort of put me in the situation where I had the choice of going and pursuing other job opportunities that were being offered to me in the sort of traditional route, mm -hmm. um, or sort of going all in on this thing that I created. Mm -hmm. And my experience at Overbrook was such that I was really loath to pursue a traditional job again. Okay. And um, but the the opportunity when I went to Overbrook, they were generous enough to let me develop the blacklist as a separate from my work with them. Okay. And, and so in many ways, that experience had allowed me the opportunity to, to go do this full time. Like I had sort of I, I had planted enough seeds. I had sort of built the, the, the flower bed enough to sort of now see this thing flower. Okay. And, um, you know, I gave myself, I think it was three months to try to, to, try to get escape velocity. And we launched, I think it was less than a month after uh, I packed my office at Overbrook. And, you know, we were profitable on day one. Even though the blacklist was a hit from the start, it was also scary to make the leap from employee to business owner. It was terrifying for me. I, I, I was didn't. Say. Yeah, I was not. I didn't grow up with entrepreneurs as parents. My my father was a doctor in the army. My mom was a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were well advised to know where our next paycheck was coming from and know how to keep food on the table. And the idea of you know sort of taking getting a running start and jumping off the cliff and figuring that out on the way down, figuring out the parachute on the way down was not really something that I had ever thought I'd do. Right. Like I, I had a healthy enough ego to think I'd be running something someday, but I just figured I'd be promoted into a job or like right. get hired for something. The idea of creating something from the ground up had literally never occurred to me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there were a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of uh, sort of waking up at 6 a.m. without an alarm clock and feeling like, oh, God, today's the day it all falls apart. I've just got to start working until I don't feel that way anymore. Oh, wow. Until this point, Franklin had been running the blacklist concurrently with having a full time job. My friend Wendy has this term she uses called the employed entrepreneur. And for most of us, the dream usually starts off as a side hustle. We spend our nights and weekends building and hoping that one day we'll be able to do that thing full time. But beware of what you wish for, because sometimes when you get it, it can be even more terrifying than not getting it. Because now there's kind of nothing standing between you and your dream. We can get so used to our dreams being intangible that when we have the opportunity to act on them, we freeze. Some people call it the fear of success, but in this moment, Franklin didn't let that fear paralyze him. Not only did he not let it paralyze him, but he expanded the scope of the original vision from it being a tool for people already in the industry to it being a tool accessible to anyone anywhere in the world. Every time I'd go speak on panel conversations as the blacklist guy about writing and breaking into the industry, mm -hmm. um, the first question that would inevitably be asked was, you know, I wrote this script. I don't know anyone that works in the industry. How do I get it to someone who works in Hollywood? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the answer was usually, well, move to Hollywood, get a job at Starbucks, you know, right. network until someone reads your script. And right. that's great advice if you're like an upper middle class kid whose parents can help support you and you're right. just out of college. But if you're a single mother living in, in Cleveland mm -hmm. and you've got two kids and a mortgage, it's that's terrible easy. advice. Right. It's, not even, it's not even possible, <laughs> right. much less feasible. And, and it also has no correlation whatsoever between whether you're a good writer or not. You know, like, and in fact, I would argue that like lived experience can and should be a, a contributing factor to really good exactly. writing. Um, yeah. So I wanted to create something that would allow any, like that would narrow the gap from being an aspiring working writer mm -hmm. 
uh, and being an aspiring or being an aspiring writer and being a working writer to being a good writer. Okay. And sort of remove the or reduce the role of knowing the right people or having to go to school with the right people or knowing the right person's dad. Um, and so we built. We basically said anyone on earth can submit to our website for a fee. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll hire some readers to evaluate scripts. And if they're good, we will tell the entire industry, hey, this is a great script. And that's the motto they live by, merit over connections. It was important for Franklin to incorporate a sense of purpose into the fabric of the blacklist and ground it in solid principles. I think the other thing that I'm really proud of, honestly, is that you know we haven't screwed the blacklist up yet. <laughs> I think there are a million different ways that we could have. and. W- we're guided by a pretty clear ethical and moral North Star in that we want to be um, a tide that raises all boats. We want to be an advocate for writers, sort of. We want to be a tide that, and I talk, I think about it as we want to be a tide that raises all boats, but especially the boats of writers and most especially the boats of good writers. And I think that as long as we're doing that, the rest will take care of itself. And I, and I try to view every decision we make through that lens. Um, and I'm really proud of the fact that, that we've been able to, to continue that point of view um, when there's certainly other approaches we could have taken. And, and that's not going to change. And, and I encourage anyone and everyone to call us out on it if it does. So many twists and turns, but all things led to this being guided by his moral North Star. Now it's your turn. Tell us, what's the North Star that's guiding you? How many times have you made choices that seem to not make sense to anyone around you, but you knew that your internal North Star was leading you in a different direction? What have you done about it? What haven't you done about it? Tweet us at showmeblueprint using hashtag North Star and hashtag the blueprint in your tweets. That's it for this episode of The Blueprint from myself, Chika Chukudibelu, and the Blueprint Show producer, Sonata Lee Narciss, we want to encourage you to keep drafting your blueprint. Tune in for a new episode in a couple weeks where we'll hear from another visionary like yourself. 